Amen. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, one of the most religious, one of the most zealous, one of the most well-off and accomplished men in all of history, he's here and he writes, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here Paul says, everything that once was gain, he now counts it as loss. He says everything that he once had, the loss of all the things that he has suffered, he counts them as rubbish. In the King James Version, he says it's dung, it's trash, it's what you throw away at the end of each week. He says everything, all of my life's work, it is trash, it is garbage that I may gain Christ. He says that he has no righteousness. All of his hard work, all of his obedience to the Jewish laws and to the Jewish religion, he says that he has no righteousness in and of himself. And the disciples, Jesus' disciples, the 12 men that he prayed for, fasted for, and hand-picked, they had a lot of self-righteousness. They, they constantly trusted in their own righteousness and in their own just self-good. During the Last Supper, we could turn to Luke chapter 22. And during the Last Supper, we find the disciples so sure of themselves. And not only are they so sure of themselves, but they are terrible at reading the room. Absolutely terrible at reading the room. Here Jesus, he's having the Last Supper together with these 12 men that he has prayed for and fasted for. In verse 19, many of us, we may know this. Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Do they begin asking, hey, Lord, what do you mean your blood being shed for us? Lord, what do you mean your body being given for us? Is this the topic of conversation that just naturally rolls in? Not at all. In verse 23, first they begin to question among themselves which of them it would be who would do this thing. And then to only make matters worse, they begin to argue about their favorite topic in verse 24. Which of them should be considered the greatest? They trusted in their own righteousness. They were self-righteous. During the Last Supper, they were so confident in their own strength and in their own righteousness. At the end of Matthew 26 and verse 35, Peter says, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Peter, he always gets a bad rep. But all the disciples said the same thing. Lord, I am strong enough. I will never leave you. Lord, I am strong enough. I'm willing to die for you, Lord. No matter the cost. No matter what's going on. But then a few verses later on, as they journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, in Jesus' darkest time, in Jesus' greatest time of need, he takes the closest disciples to him, Peter, James, and John. And he tells them in verse 37, hey, I'm sorrowful. I'm deeply distressed. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Friends, would you stay here and watch with me? 
These very same men, a few minutes earlier, a few hours earlier, that said, Lord, we would die for you. We'll never leave you. We'll never forsake you. We're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How do they respond? They fall asleep. They could not stay awake, not even one hour. Some of us in movies, we can relate, right? Can't stay awake, not even one hour. Die for you. Peter could not even stay awake for Jesus in his greatest time of need. He comes to them three times, and finally, verse 45, he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Simon Peter, who once said, Lord, I'm willing to die for you, he brings out his sword. He cuts off the ear of a random servant of the high priest. He's not able to kill anyone. He's not able to defend Jesus Christ. And then to make matters worse, Jesus publicly corrects Peter in front of all his peers, in front of all the Roman soldiers, and in front of the high priest's servants. And Jesus tells Peter in John 18, verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter, so trusting in his own righteousness, but it's only going to get worse. Later on that same night, he denies his Lord three times. After arguing with him, Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He denies him three times. And finally, after the third time, Jesus is there and makes eye contact with him and sees his eyes. This man that once said, Lord, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm willing to die for you. Jesus makes eye contact with him in the very moments when he's completely fleeing from any relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants no one to know that he knows him, that he's even associated with him. He wants nothing to do with Christ, and then he leaves and he goes out bitterly. Friend, do you trust in your own righteousness? Do you, like the disciples, have a great trust in how good you are, that you're a good person, that you've done enough, you've spent enough time, maybe at church, maybe with Jesus, maybe you are religious enough to get you to heaven? How many people believe that they're going to heaven because they are a good person? You ask any random person on the street if they believe in heaven and hell, right? You ask them, hey, are you going to heaven or hell? Of course I'm going to heaven. Hey, why are you going to heaven this morning? What demands you the right to enter into heaven this morning? Many of us will say we're good. I'm a good person. Many of us as parents, we say our kids, they're, they're good people. They're good kids. They rob us house and home, but they're good kids. They're good people, right? God will not judge us on a scale. And if we're honest, each of us at our heart and at our core are selfish and are motivated by our own self-interests. Our love for comfort, our love for our own personal gain drives us to manipulate and even hurt the people we love most much less a stranger or someone we don't even care about. How many of us manipulate and guilt the people we love in order to please ourselves on the highest and holiest of days? During the holidays, do we not taste of that in the family circles? We try to manipulate one another. Hey, you know, I was thinking for Thanksgiving, I think it would be great if we each just took our own Thanksgiving trip by ourselves, right? But we try to manipulate things. Hey, for Christmas, don't you think it'd be better if we didn't spend it at your mom's house and we just spent it alone by ourselves with no one else around? We manipulate even the people that we love. We guilt them in order to please ourselves. Or do we really trust in our own righteousness? How often do we only think about ourselves in a situation? After a long day of work, we arrive at home and what do we assume? Hey, I should be waited on hand and foot. The meal should be there. The house should be clean. The kids should all be dressed and in perfect order saying, good afternoon, Father. <laughs> we think of ourselves. We are selfish to our core. Are we still trusting in our own self-righteousness? And we haven't even brought in the Ten Commandments yet. You shall have no other gods before me. Do we have any other gods before the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the one we sang, we sung about? Where does the majority of our love, our time, our effort, and our money go? 
Can any of us this morning say, hey, the majority of my time, my love, my effort, and my money goes to the King of kings and Lord of lords? The commandments tell us to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How did we do the last time we stubbed our toe on the bed frame? How did we do on the way here when someone cut us off in traffic? How did we do when not using the name of our Lord in vain? How about observing the Sabbath? Is our track record at church perfect? Are we keeping it holy? And no, brunch, boats, and beach are not considered holy. Are we keeping the Sabbath day holy? Honoring our father and mother. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. How are we doing with our time at the workplace? Are we on our phone? Are we wasting time? Are we wasting our employer's clock? You shall not covet all of social media. For honest, it's about coveting what other people have. Where other people are at. What other people are posting and doing. The commandments tell us to not commit adultery. To not murder. And most of us say, hey, I'm pretty good with that. But Jesus always ups the ante. In Matthew 5, he tells us, you have heard that it was said of those of old. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does our browsing history look like? What does our social media look like? If we would post it online for everyone to see, how confident would we be in our own self-righteousness? Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So friend, how confident are you that your own righteousness is good enough to keep you from tasting and taking the full wrath of God every day for the rest of eternity? Where would you rate that confidence meter? It's like some of the gun enthusiasts that perhaps you've bought a pair of plates or a bulletproof vest, how confident are you that that thing's going to block a bullet? You're willing to put it on and test it, right? Let's see if it's good or not. But where's that confidence level at? And today we rarely speak about the wrath of God. It's not a very common sermon topic. I don't know when was the last time you were sitting at Starbucks or your favorite coffee shop and say, hey, let's talk about the wrath of God, right? What do you think about it? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going through some of the most intense emotion and agony and feeling that he's ever been through and that any human being has ever been through. In Luke 22 verse 44, it tells us, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and then his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was under so much stress that his blood vessels and his sweat glands burst and they met together and he begins to sweat blood itself. In Matthew 26, as he tells the disciples, hey, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He prays three times, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays this three times. What was Jesus so fearful of? Was it death? The one who holds the keys to heaven and hell, you think he was fearful of death? Was it the death of the cross? Was it the shame of the cross? Is that what our Lord and Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God incarnate, is that what he was fearful of? We know of martyrs that on their way to their own crosses, on their way to being burned at the stake, are singing and dancing and rejoicing and preaching the gospel. Do we think Jesus was weaker than mere mortals? No, friend. What Jesus was fearful of was being separated by God the Father for the only time in all of eternity and also fearful of the cup of the wrath of God. And we take it so lightly. We, we assume, of course I'm not going to go to hell. Of course I'm going to heaven. In Psalm 75 verse 8, reading from the New American Standard Bible, 
The psalmist says that there's a cup in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. You see, Jesus took the full cup of the wrath of God for all of humanity. And not just for this great cloud of humanity, but for you and for me. The price has been paid. The wrath has been endured by the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why he on the cross says, it is finished, paid in full. This is the only out of the wrath of God for all of eternity. It's by putting our our faith, our place, our life in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Revelation 14 verse 10, it tells us that he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out at full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. The cup of the wrath of God will be poured out once again and for the rest of eternity to those who are there in hell. How confident are we of our own righteousness? How confident are we that we're going to be able to withstand the full wrath of God? The Hoover Dam stands about 726 feet high. That's a 70-story building. It's 1,200 feet long. That's over four football fields long of pure concrete. It's not even the largest dam in the entire world. In Venezuela, there's a dam that is holding 135 cubic kilometers of water. That's over 32 cubic miles of water. If you're bad at math like me, it's just a lot of water. (laughs) It's a lot of water. 32 cubic miles of water. How willing are we to stand in front of that concrete? And just allow the full force of that water to be unleashed on us. How confident are we that our good works will block us and defend us from such great power and wrath that has already been poured out on his only begotten son? How dare we think, of course I'm not going to hell. Of course I demand entrance into heaven. I've been good. Again, friend, how confident are you that your own righteousness is good enough to keep you from taking the full wrath of God every day for the rest of eternity? Each of us, we know someone that has passed away from this life to the next. Young lives, older lives, children, grandparents, spouses. We know many people that have gone from this life Into the next, are we prepared this day? Are we prepared this day to see his face, face to face? Charles Spurgeon says those who dream of being saved by their own good works are usually those who have no good works worth mentioning. While those who sincerely lay aside all hope of salvation by their own merits are fruitful in every virtue to the praise of God. We're so confident in our own good work, our own righteousness, just like the disciples were. And yet what good did the disciples do during their time on earth before the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Nothing. They're always in trouble. They're always putting their foot in their mouth. They're always saying, hey, God, you want us to fry these people and bring fire down from heaven? They're always making things more difficult, if you would. How would our list of righteousness compare to that of Paul? Again, many of us that we say, of course I'm a good person. What good have we done? How many hospitals are named after us? How many clinics are named after us? How many children have we adopted and we've saved? How many people have we saved from trafficking? How much good have we truly done and yet we assume I am a good person? How would our list of righteousness compare with that of Paul? In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5 and 6, he lists it for us. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And this is in the Bible, so we know Paul wasn't lying, right? He says, concerning the law, he was blameless. 
There were 613 commandments in the Torah, and Paul's able to write down that he was blameless. Let's be honest. How well did we do with our Ten Commandments, right? Were any of us blameless there? And yet Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 8 that he counts them as rubbish. They are just trash. It's trash. It's dung. It's garbage. Get rid of it. Toss it out that I may be found in Jesus Christ. That I may gain Jesus Christ. Not having my own righteousness. Again, Paul lost all confidence in his own righteousness and viewed them as garbage in comparison with Jesus Christ. Again, friend, no man can stand before the throne of God based upon the foundation of our own righteousness. None of us will be able to stand before Jesus Christ on the foundation of our religion or our religiosity or our obedience to the law. David The man whom the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 143 verse 2, he writes down and he says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. This is the man after God's own heart. And he says, Lord, don't enter into judgment with me. I'm not going to be able to stand. Jesus Christ has eyes of fire and sees all things. Our God, he's a holy God. He's an all-consuming fire. And the slightest speck of unrighteousness in our lives needs to be judged and cast away from his sight. How often within the Gospels does Jesus say, does the Bible say, and Jesus knowing their hearts, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, and then he begins to answer them and speak to them. We know that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Again, family, God, he knows our hearts. He knows what's going on in our mind. He knows the sick and twisted ideas that we're fearful of people finding out that we're thinking about. He he knows it all. He knows our deepest and darkest secret. He knows what you're hiding from your spouse, what you're hiding from your children, what you're hiding from your parents. He knows everything. And he, being a righteous judge, is going to judge based on all the evidence that he has. And him being God, guess what? He has all the evidence. Not just what's put out there. He has all the evidence. And if he's a righteous judge, he needs to judge righteously. That's why we have to come to the end of ourselves and the terrible excuse we have for our self-righteousness and accept the gift of salvation that's been purchased for you and I. The free gift of salvation. All we have to do is admit, I am not good enough to get into heaven. All we have to admit is my righteousness is not good enough. And Lord, I accept this gift of salvation and I want to live for you and I want to live getting to know you for the rest of my life. That's all we have to pray. We need to come to him by faith, not by our works, not by being better than the person next to us, but by faith asking, Lord, are you willing to identify with me? Because I'm willing to identify with you. That his righteousness becomes our righteousness. In Jeremiah 23 verse 6, it tells us, in the days of Judah, we will be saved. In the days of Judah, in his days, sorry, In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's why we sing. It's not I. It's Christ in me. The Lord, our righteousness. And this is why Paul's desire, Paul's aim, Paul's goal, Paul's life pursued was to know him was to get to know Jesus Christ more and more. We live in such a dark day where we're constantly seeing these active shooter situations. I don't know if you've ever put yourself there and pictured being there in one of those situations. But, but put yourself there, and for whatever reason, for all the guys here, you don't have all the guns that you usually bring. For whatever reason, they, they, I know we're in Florida. For whatever reason, right, they snuck up on you. They caught you. And you're looking at the end of the barrel of that gun. And all of a sudden, some stranger pushes you to the side, takes the bullet for you, and then shoots down that bad guy. Would you want to get to know that person? 
Or would you just idly stand by there and say, hey, thanks, chief. I'll see you later on. And then what if you get home and find out somebody paid your mortgage? Someone paid your college tuition. Someone paid your kids' college tuition. And you say, who paid this? The same guy that saved your life earlier today. Would you want to get to know him? And then later on, hey, someone paid a full paid vacation for you and your family to Hawaii or wherever your favorite place is. Who paid for it? The same guy that saved you. The same guy that sacrificed his own life for you. Would that not cause you to want to go out of your way and get to know him? When he says, hey, whenever you want to be friends, I'm willing to be your friend. Whenever you want to go out to coffee, hey, let's, let's go get coffee. Whenever you want to get some pastelitos, hey, let's go and get some pastelitos, right? Would we not have a desire within us to get to know him? It's not to get to know Jesus through books and doctrine alone, but through a personal experience with Jesus Christ over and over and over again for the rest of our life. It's to have a personal and experiential knowledge that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're experiencing his love, his mercy, his grace day in and day out. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Paul became a holy walker and a heavenly runner because of what he saw in Christ Jesus. Be you sure of this, that the less you value your own righteousness, the more you will seek after true holiness. The less you think of your own beauty, the more passionately you will long to become like our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you sick and tired of your own righteousness? Are you sick and tired of falling back into sin and falling back into the same habits? Are you sick and tired of going to bed at night realizing, man, I'm a loser. What is going on? Are you sick and tired of allowing your fears to overwhelm you and rule over you? Are you sick and tired of the depression owning you day in and day out? Come to the end of your righteousness. Come to the end of your frailties and weaknesses and cry out saying, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you. Friends, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him like Paul says? I'm not asking what do you know about him. I'm asking, do you know him? I'm not asking how well will you do in Bible Jeopardy and Double Jeopardy, right? I'm asking, do you know him? And just because you've attended church, just because you've grown up in church, does not mean that you know him, that you've experienced him, that you have a friendship with him. Do you know him? It's not by association. You can't say a friend of a friend of a friend knows him, so I know him by association. You can't say, hey, my wife is close to him. My wife knows him, so of course I know him. My parents know him. My son or daughter know him, so of course I know him. Do you know him? Do you have a friendship with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? And one thing I've realized in life is for many years I thought I knew him and I didn't know him whatsoever. I grew up in church. I went to VBS. I went to youth camp. I rolled those emotional highs and then went right back to the pit in sin. Guess what? I only knew about him. I could list a couple facts. I could tell you what the Bible said about him. I could tell you what the pastors said about him. I could tell you what my parents said about him. But I did not know him. Do you know him this morning? The disciples, they thought they knew Jesus. They spent three years living with him, three years serving him, three years giving up their businesses to associate themselves with Jesus Christ. They were there with him when he's handing out the loaves and the fish to multitudes, being multiplied for 5,000 people. They knew him to the point that they believed they deserved to sit at his right hand and left hand and rule Israel and reign over the rest of eternity. They thought they knew Jesus. They saw Jesus raise the son of a widow on the way to the funeral in Luke 7, 15. Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead in Luke 8, 51. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus, one of his closest friends, from the dead in John eleven fourteen. They thought they knew Jesus Christ. And yet the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, not one of the disciples believed. Not one of them. If you're there, you could turn to Luke chapter 24 if you have your Bible. 
Luke 24, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Many of us, we go through this. If you have a loved one that's buried somewhere at some cemetery and you come and you bring flowers or you bring something to remember them, to memorialize them, that's what these ladies were doing. But Jesus had told them several times, hey, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to die for three days and then resurrect. It's, it's all over the Gospels. And yet on this third day, what did these women bring? They brought more embalming spices. They didn't bring a cake. They didn't bring pastries. They didn't bring streamers and loud music. They didn't bring their pots and pans. They didn't bring any of that. They came with more funeral materials. They didn't believe. And then they see that the stone is rolled away from the tomb. Then they go in. They don't find the body of Jesus in verse 3. Then in verse 4, it says that they were greatly perplexed about this. Still don't believe. Then behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men but, and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They finally believe. They believe what they're seeing. They go, they tell the disciples. The eleven men that Jesus, he prayed for, he fasted for all night long and handpicked each and every one of them. You would think receiving this news from many women, they receive it from Mary Magdalene, verse 10. Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And do they believe, verse 11? Their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. It, these ladies are crazy. They're emotional. What's going on with them? What's wrong with them? Then Peter, he gets up. He runs to the tomb. He stoops down. He sees the linen clothes lying by themselves. Then he departs marveling to himself what had happened. Then later on, two other disciples, after they've heard all of this, they've heard all this from the women's account, they've heard Peter and John's account, then in verse 22, the same chapter, it says, Yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These two disciples, they don't believe. They're on their way to Emmaus. That's why Jesus walking with them. They still don't see him. They still don't believe him. In verse 25, then Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's a long Bible study, right? It's a long sermon. He goes from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament, speaking to them and showing them where he's at. The disciples, they thought they knew Jesus, and yet the very morning he resurrects, He's walking by them. They don't realize it. He's there in the garden with Mary. She doesn't realize it. Do we know Jesus Christ? Do we have that personal relationship with him? Friend, we are not going to be brought into redemption from hell without being brought to the Redeemer himself. If you're not with the Redeemer, if you don't have a friendship and relationship with him, you have no redemption. You have no salvation. The one who holds our eternal judgment is the same one who took our eternal wrath of God and the wrath of God from billions of people throughout the course of history. In John chapter 5, verse 22, it tells us that the Father judges no one, 
but he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is the one that we're going to be having to look at in the eye saying, Lord, of course I know you. Of course I'm good enough. Of course I deserve entrance into heaven. After he's already withstood the wrath of God for us, he's saying, hey, I've done it for you. Just accept it by faith. Do we truly know Jesus? The only thing that's going to matter for all of eternity is not what you know. It's not what you've accomplished. It's not all your hard work and all your efforts. The only thing that will matter for the rest of eternity is who do you know? Who do you know? Do you truly have a relationship and a friendship with him? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, that's where we get this scary portion of Scripture. Jesus, he warns us. He warns all of us here this afternoon, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Lord, I was there that Sunday morning on Easter. Lord, I've done things for you. But then in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Friend, do you know him? Do you have that relationship with him, that friendship with him? Right? Some of us, we follow the heat. Maybe you know who Jimmy Butler is, but do you know Jimmy Butler? Do you know him? Try it. Go to the, go to the heat arena, whatever it's called now. I keep changing the name, right? Go to, the, go to the arena and say, hey, I know Jimmy Buckets, man. I know who he is, and try to get in there. Try to get right on the court and see how that works out for you, right? You'll get arrested. You'll get thrown out of the stadium, never allowed to get back in there. Do you know him? It's the same thing with heaven. You may know about Jesus. You may have a friend of a friend that knows him. Your mom may know him. Your daughter, your your spouse may know him. But do you know him? Have you had that personal experience with Jesus Christ over and over and over again? Not just one camp. Not just one retreat, not just one Sunday, but you have a personal relationship with him. If we know him, guess what we're going to taste of? We're going to taste and experience the power of his resurrection. Every single one of us will taste of it in a personal and in an intimate way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Whatever your past, whatever has transpired in the past, whatever you've done, whatever you're ashamed of, whatever you're afraid to tell your own family members, if you are in Christ, the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This Resurrection Sunday, I always get emotional about it because how many of us would not be here if it were not for the resurrection? How many of us, our parents, would have stayed divorced and never gotten back together? How many of us, we would have never met our spouse? How many of us, our kids would have never existed if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How many of you would have lost your sons and daughters to depression and to suicide if it were not for the resurrection and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he so desperately loves you. He so desperately wants that friendship and relationship with you. He gave up everything to be in this intimate friendship and relationship with you. What are we doing with our lives? What are we chasing after? More comfort and more comfort and more comfort? Are we not tired of just how much excess we have? So much excess today. The power of his resurrection, it's out there for each and every one of us if we want to know him. Charles Spurgeon, he tells us that there's four powers in this power of Jesus' resurrection. First, there's an evidencing power The power of Christ's resurrection is the evidence and seal that everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said 
was absolutely true. And if everything Jesus has ever said and is recorded in Scripture is true, where do you stand? Where do you stand if everything that he said is true? We can visit the grave of Muhammad. We can visit the grave of Buddha. We can visit the grave of so many other religions and their leaders. You visit the grave of Jesus Christ, and guess what? It's empty. The tomb is empty. The power of his resurrection is a justifying power. It is the receipt and proof that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was accepted by God as payment in full. We have a receipt that we're accepted into heaven. We have a receipt that we have friendship with Jesus Christ. We have a receipt that we've been adopted into the family of God by the power of Jesus and his resurrection. The power of his resurrection is a life-giving power. It means that anyone who comes to him and is connected with Jesus Christ will receive the same resurrection life. Have you received it? Are you still dead in your sins or are you free from your sins? Do your addictions come and grab the chains of your life and soul and your mind and just shake them and you have no freedom and you have to go back to those addictions over and over and over again? Or do you have the life-giving power of Jesus Christ that you can say no more? I once was addicted to alcohol. I once was addicted to drugs. I once was addicted to my phone. I was once addicted to pornography. I was once addicted to sex, but no longer. That is no longer my master. Do you have that power? Finally, the power of his resurrection is a consoling and comforting power. It promises that our friends and our loved ones who are dead in Christ are alive with him right now. And if we're dead in Christ, we're going to see them face to face. We're going to get to spend time with them once again. John 5.29 gives us two options of resurrection. In John 5.29, Jesus says, Those who have done good, they come forth to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's going to be a bad wake-up call. No matter how difficult of a death you go through, if you're not saved in Christ, it's only going to get worse. You're going to wake up. You're going to resurrect to condemnation. Resurrect to the wrath of God. But if we're in Christ, if we've accepted his gift, then we get to resurrect to life and that abundantly. Again, Jesus had so much power. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Maybe someone else has said this. I don't know if anybody else has said this. But no one else has said this and resurrected from the dead. He didn't reincarnate. He didn't regenerate. No, he resurrected. He had the power to lay down his life and to pick it up whenever he wants. And friend, this power of his resurrection can restore us and give us a power and a hope and a future that we can't even imagine. A a hope that we cannot fathom. I look at my wife, I look at my three children, I look at my life, and I think back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend the blessings that are inside of it, but it all begins with dying to ourselves and saying, Lord, from here on out, I'm living for you. The power of his resurrection, it saves the disciples, and it has the power to save you today. We just have to accept it. We just have to humble ourselves and say, Lord, what your word says is true, and I'm going to live as it is true. The power of his resurrection, it saved Peter and the disciples from themselves and from being known as those who always argued about who was the greatest. It saved them from being known as those who were not able to save their own master. It saved the disciples from being those who fell asleep during their Lord's greatest time of need. The power of the resurrection, it saved them from being known as those who deserted their friend at his arrest. From those who did not attend his crucifixion. From being known as those who denied the resurrection even though they were told earlier and saw the tomb empty. That's the power of his resurrection. And because of the power of his resurrection, now they are known 
as those who brought to life 3,000 men in one day. Because of the power of the resurrection, they are known as those who gave sight to the blind, who healed the lame, who healed the sick. Because of the power of the resurrection, they are known as those who counted it in honor to be bruised and beaten and martyred for Jesus Christ. Because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these disciples who at one moment ran for their lives from these Pharisees, a month or two afterwards are looking them dead in the eye saying, you are the ones who crucified Jesus Christ. It's the power of his resurrection. Now they are known as those who this world was not worthy of. What do you want to be known for for the rest of your life? There's so much power in Jesus Christ that he wants to pour into your life and into your family and into your children and to your children's children. But we're too focused on self. We're too focused on our own self-righteousness, our own comfort, our own desires, and we're keeping back this incredible power to bless our lives and to bless the lives of our family. Friend, is your life and the life of your family displaying the power of his resurrection? Do you have that power over your thoughts, over your sin, over your shame, over your fears? If we know him, we're going to have the power of his resurrection. If we have the power of his resurrection, guess what? You're going to have the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the part of resurrection we don't like. What's required to be able to resurrect? You got to die. We need to die to ourselves. If we have the fellowship of his sufferings, then we will be conformed to his death. We need to die to our sins. We need to die to self and say, Lord, from here on out, I want to be obedient to you and your word. Friend, have you come to the end of yourself? Hopefully today is that day of salvation for you. Hopefully you'll humble yourself and say, Lord, your word says that if I deny you before men, you will deny me before your Father in heaven. And Lord, your word says that if I proclaim you in front of men, Lord, you are going to proclaim and identify with me in front of your Father in heaven. What side do you want to be on? We get to identify with him and he will identify with us when it matters most. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords? That everything that he said is absolute truth? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, taking the penalty that you deserved and rose from the dead willing to trade places with you? Do you believe this? And after believing these two things, are we committed to following Jesus Christ no matter the cost, no matter the cost, whatever it takes, whatever difficulty, whatever comes our way, are we committed to following him? Let's turn to one last scripture. Let's go to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Worship team can start making their way up here. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 tells us, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Do you want to be freed this morning? Do you want to be freed from that cruel master? Doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, just wants to destroy you and your family and your loved ones. Just, just cry out to Jesus Christ this morning. 
In a moment, we'll close in worship. We'll all stand together. And if you're sick and tired of your sins, I encourage you, just come up front. Just come up front. Talk with one of the pastors. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And especially for those of us, and I've been there, that have grown up in church, that maybe you think your salvation is based on association. You were blessed with an incredible parent. You were blessed with an incredible spouse or incredible children. Today's that day of salvation. And there's no associations that get you into heaven. It's your own personal walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're realizing that this morning. You were blessed with an incredible heritage, but now you need to make your own decisions. Make that decision today. Say, I want to be that heritage for my children and for my children's children. I want to be that heritage for my spouse and for my family and for my loved ones. So I encourage you, let's all stand. We'll pray and close in worship. The pastors, they'll be up front. If you want prayer, if you just want to talk, hey, just come up front and pray with one of the pastors. The rest of us, let's be praying and let's be worshiping. So Lord, we just love you, God. And we thank you for this free gift of salvation, Lord. Lord, you paid the price. You took our penalty. You took our shame, Lord. You were beaten and bruised for our transgressions, Lord. Lord, we can never thank you enough, Lord. We know that we will be singing and worshiping you for the rest of eternity for all that you've done for us. And Lord, with whatever fear perhaps we're wrestling with, Lord, whatever shame we may be wrestling with, Lord, I pray that we would look at what we have to gain in you, Lord. A friend that sticks closer than any brother, the only one that can wash away all of our sins and all of our shame. Lord, we stand to gain being adopted as sons and daughters into your family. Lord, we stand to gain newness of life, no longer being owned by our sins, Lord, but having freedom in you. Lord, help us not just look at what we may lose or what the cost may be. Lord, help us to look at what's the cost if we don't stand for you this morning, Lord. What's the cost if I die on my way home tonight, Lord? What's the cost to my family, to my marriage, to my children if I don't accept this gift today? So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the love that you've poured out for each and every one of us, Lord. We just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.